I'll take a check, <laughs> as many zeros as possible.
All right, how about now? I've got it unmuted. Okay, cool. All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How's everybody tonight? I'll save the public chastisement for after we turn the recording off for this morning. No gold stars. What's on your hearts for prayer right quick? Or praise? Amen. Praise for granddaughter's baptism. Awesome. What else? Amen. That is, it's just a vision thing, and it's not, not, not a brain tumor. Praise God for that. What else? Going once. Jude was able to find a church to recommend to his family in the Philippines. That's awesome. What else? Going once. Going twice. So, all right, well, somebody will open it up. I'll close it, and then we will dive into God's Word. Father God, we do thank you for the time to gather in your name, to worship in your name. Father, there's no higher worship than the study of your word and the proclamation of your word. And Father, we thank you for this hour. Father, open our hearts to you. That, that's, that's the cry of our heart, Lord. Father, lead us to you. Father, bring us closer to you. Father, teach us more about you, that we praise you better, that we worship you better. Father, that we walk closer to you, that we trust you more, Father. That's the cry of our heart tonight, God. Father, I do want to lift these praise reports before you. Father, I thank you, uh, Father, for faith. Lord, that it is just an, an eye problem and that it's nothing that can't be fixed within just a couple of hours of, of, of having glasses, God. Father, praise be to you for that. Lord, in this age of cancer and disease and tumors, Father, we are thankful for that. Father, we rejoice with Damon and Liz on this. God, thank you. Father, for Jude being able to find a church for his family in the Philippines, Lord. God, where good preaching and teaching of your word is abundant. Father, we thank you for that. Father, may you bless that church. And Father, may you bless his family's time at that church. 
Lord, as they exalt you, draw Jude's family closer to you. Father, I thank you for Jude and Faye and Sam and, Father, their, their entire family, for they are a precious people, and, Lord, we thank you for them. Father, for Richard and Sally's granddaughter's baptism last week. Father, we thank you for the baptism, but, Lord, we thank you more for the salvation. Father, we thank you that there is another name that will not be removed from the book of life. Lord, that you will look at her one day and say, enter into your reward. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, as her parents grow her, Father, as they teach her, Lord, as she gets under the preaching and the teaching of the word, Father, may she absorb it. Father, may she, may she hear it, may she see it. Father, may she live it. Father, that's, that's for all of us, Lord. May we live your word. Father, you give us three commands in Revelation, and Father, may we heed them. Father, may we, may we latch on to them. Father, as we do go into Revelation, Lord, it's a book that's, that's been tainted by opinion. Father, where people have given opinions, not necessarily based in Scripture. Father, we have conjecture, and there are room, and there are times for that, Lord. But Father, we take our conjecture and we turn it into facts in some cases. Father, we desire the pure, sincere milk of the Word. Fill us tonight, God. Father, may our conversation be joyful. Father, may it be uplifting. May it be glorifying to you. Father, may we edify the name of Christ. Father, set me aside. I'm just an old clay pot. May you teach a lesson better than I'm prepared to give. Father, may those people hear a better lesson than I'm prepared to give. Father, I ask that you take over. This is your time. These are your people. Father, may you be glorified in all that we say and do. I ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Okay. Cool. Sweet. <clears throat> All right. Revelation chapter 1. Let's, we'll read through the first three verses, refresh a few memories, and then we'll dive into verse 4 and carry on. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. All right, so what do we see? Bless you. First off, we have it is given by whom? Given by God to Christ. It is then entrusted, trusted by Christ to the angel. The angel then delivers to John. And then it is declared. By John to whom? To the seven churches. 
And we got one more verb. It's acted upon. Acted upon by the church. All right, now we are given three commands in the introduction. What are the three commands? Read, hear, and heed. So we're given three commands, and if we follow these commands, what are we promised? Blessings. Okay, so that gets us to verse 4. Let's pick up and carry on. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's break apart verse 4. So, again, who's writing? John. This is the beginning of the communication. This is the beginning of the declaration. got a declaration by John to the church. And what's this declaration? We were, we're told who is given, we, and we said that grace and peace were indicative of this being a what? Last week. It's a letter. Specifically, what do we call it in the church? An epistle. Because we see grace and peace to you. Now, John's imparting something to the church. He's, this is kind of a prayer. He's asking for grace and peace because as we get into the letters, we're going to see that, see that the churches are going to need an exorbitant amount of grace and peace. Now, there's a lot of John, so who are we talking about? Can't you see this guy walking up? <laughs> hey, I've got a reservation tonight. Well, who are you? I'm John. John. John who? Um, John. John. Oh, you John John. Okay, yeah, yeah. Hey, this is John John. You know, like the John. <laughs> so we've got John the Revelator. <laughs> Y'all getting all tickled. Y'all having some potty humor over there. Y'all be stopped. <laughs> You've got John the Revelator, also known as John the Beloved, John the Apostle. But so far, he's just calling himself John. Now, ironically, this is the only book that he really says, hey, this is John. He'll say from John 2, but just he's going to refer to himself several times in this by name, not by, oh, I'm the one that Jesus loves, right. or hey, I'm the one that was faster than Peter because I got there first. <laughs> so, John, to the seven churches, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Now when we see that phrase, it's the same every time when we see the threefold phrase. Why might that be? No. How, what order is it in? 
present, who is, who was, who was, and then who will be. We've got currently, past, and then future. Now it will change later in the book. What does it change to? It changes to who is and who will be. Because we're not concerned with the past anymore because at, at the, eventually at that point the past has been destroyed. The past will go away. The earth and the heavens will be <laughs> melted in fervent heat. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. So all we're concerned with at that point is from that point forward. So there's no need to worry about the past. Why would John, or why would God put it in this order? Because he's relating to us in the present. He's relating to us in the present. Because what was that, Michael? He is. Because he is. He's just outside of time. He uses past and present to help us. He, at minimum, he's a four-dimensional being. We're three and a half. What else? Why else, Mighty? To reiterate how powerful he is as a being to step into time in a way that we can understand even though he is outside of time. Now we're talking about God the Father here at the moment. But in a little while we're going to see it refer to whom? Jesus. Now for Jesus to claim I am the one who is, who was, and who will be, what do we have in, in, an equation giving us here? That he's equal with God, not necessarily just equal with God, but what? That he is God as an expression of deity. So we will see this as an expression of deity. Right now we're laying out who the Father is because we've seen in the, in the following sentences that we're going to have a description specifically for Christ. We're going to have a description specifically for the Holy Spirit. So what we're establishing here is the Trinity, the state at which the Trinity exists, and for those that are modalists, we're creating a gigantic problem. If you're a modalist, T.D. Jakes is the most, probably the most prolific modalist today. The God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can't exist as those parts at the same time. You said can't? Cannot. Okay. The modalist believes that God exists in one mode at a time. Yes, ma'am. Modalist mode, M-O-D-E. Whatever mode God is in at that time, that's how he is. He's either God the Father, or he's God the Son, or he's God the Holy Spirit. Now, last week we brought up that there are a few instances that are problems of this in the Scripture. What are they? Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism, for one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In the beginning, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The crucifixion. How so? Um, when God turned his face away. God turned his face away. Okay. There's another concrete example that I'm thinking of specifically. Mount of Transfiguration. You've got God the Father speaking 
about God the Son who is currently being surrounded by God the Holy Spirit and God the Son is pulling back his fleshly body to expose the glory that is contained within him. There's another example that John tells us. You men should know about it because we talked about it a few weeks ago. The magnets are on the doors again. I've got to talk to Aaron. There's a point at which Jesus is praying for the disciples and the people and God answers him. This is, this is during Holy Week and God answers him and it says that the people heard it as a great thundering. But Jesus prays and God the Father answers the Son and says, I will, I will more or less, I'm going to do what you ask. And so you've got God the Father and God the Son existing at the same time. So we've got multiple examples of modalism being a heresy, that it, it's not true. Yeah, pretty much. So we've got who is, who was, and who will be. Um, who is is the most important part of this. What's God's name? I am. That I am. That I am. God, we're, we're talking about time here. I don't want us to get bogged down in temporal mechanics. But for God to step into time and to be an infinite being, all time is the same to God. Every moment in history is right now to God. It's not that God's just sitting here and he's walking down, looking down the movie film, slide by slide by slide. It's that God's sitting there and he's looking at the totality of time. For those of you that were in here a few years ago, we took a chain and we stretched out. Some of you may remember. And we talked about the way we view time is that chain. This second is this length, this second is this length, this second is this length, or nanosecond, 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 nanosecond. And, we could sh and the way we see it, that chain is stretched out completely, and that's how we view time. Whereas God takes the chain and he just piles it on the floor. And the way he takes that scarlet thread of Christ's life and his blood, this chain's piled on the floor, and he sticks it through. And then he then takes it and pulls it back up through. Now those links may be connected, may not necessarily be connected in a way that we understand. But when we take that chain and we stretch it out, that scarlet thread weaves all through that chain. And so the way we view time versus the way God is seeing time, we're sitting here hopscotching from one link to the next, whereas God's looking at the totality of it in a giant pile, just to really, <laughs> to, bring, to bring the example down to where I can really understand it. And so that's how we see time. And so God being I am that I am, I am eternal, I am infinite, the who is, is the most important part in this. Who will be, for us, is important. Who was, is not necessarily as important because the past is done. There's nothing that we can do about the past. There's something God can do about the past, but for us, the past is gone. We can't affect it. And so for him to say who is, is the most important, and who will be, we finish, we've, we've got two mountain peaks here. We start on a high note, we finish on a high note. And then, and the next part, not just from the one who is, who was, and who will be, but also, <laughs> stole my sneeze. <laughs> 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 
from him who is and who was and who will come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. All right, so not only do we have the Father expressed now, but who else do we have? We've got the seven spirits. And where are they? Before the throne. What are the seven spirits? What are the seven spirits? They're God. We were hoping you'd tell us. You, you were hoping I would tell you. Well, I was hoping somebody in here had actually read the book of Isaiah. Huh? Isaiah 11, 2, and 3. Somebody open there and read it for us. So what we've got is we've got the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of fear. And might. And might. Yeah. But it's a very common unique number. What number is it? Seven. It's seven. What does seven stand for? Perfection. Perfection, completeness, wholeness. So what we see here, we've got an expression of the wholeness of God the Father ontologically or how he exists, who is, who was, and who will be as best our mind can understand. Somebody that is eternal. We've got an expression of the completeness of the Holy Spirit. So we've got two of the Trinity so far. Yes, ma'am. used here, the spirit of the Lord, it's not the spirit of Yahweh per se, it's more like the spirit of the holy. Okay. So what we would call, it, I mean, we, in our language, the way we would translate would be Holy Spirit, but let's say, let's call it a spirit of holiness. Okay, because like the way it flows, it's like spirit of God, and then... Yeah, it's, it's that, that you've got one that's a objective, and then the rest of them are subjective, I get that. Uh, so, we'll put holiness in there. So we've got spirits of holiness, wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge, fear, might. We've got a complete understanding, as best we can, of the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. Do we see these at play in the Bible? Where do we see spirits of might? Samson. Samson. What was that? David, strong might. What about Gideon? Yeah, we got Gideon, spirit of might. Where do we see a spirit of counsel? Solomon. Solomon. 
Solomon has a couple of these. What other one does he have? Wisdom. He's got wisdom and he's got counsel. Where else do we see a spirit of counsel? Who's that? Daniel, we see a spirit of counsel. A lot of the prophets. Most of the prophets have that. Most of them, several of them don't have understanding because they write what God tells them to write. They're like, God, um, what's this? What you saying here? Because remember, Daniel has to ask for understanding. God, what this dream, what does it mean? God, this Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what does it mean? God, this prophecy that you've given to me, what does it mean? And God says, well, what? No, we don't possess. Where do we see a spirit of understanding, though? Daniel, Daniel was given that on a as-needed basis. Where else do we see it? We see it with Joseph. Whenever we see these, we usually see them in twos or threes in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we're given the complete Holy Spirit. And so God expects us to walk in all of these. We're expected to walk in holiness. We're expected to walk in wisdom. Be ye wise as serpent, harmless as what? Doves. Yes, sir. I have a question. What? I just have a question. No, what you got? We'll get to that. That's why you have a map of the temple. I promise we're going to get to that portion of it. That's just, we've got to get down into the next section where we see that occur. Okay? But we normally see these in pairs, in trios. But now, again, in the New Testament, we're called to walk in might. 365 times the Bible says, do not fear or do not be afraid. Or fear not. One for every day of the year. Don't be afraid. We're, we're called to walk with a spirit of fear of the Lord. How does that serve us? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That one piggybacks to that one. All right, how does wisdom serve us? Knowledge is having something to say. Wisdom is not saying it when it's the most tempting. I'm just saying this is my wisdom imparted to you you get that for free tonight how does the spirit of counsel serve us shine the light on our path shine the light on our path gives us direction, gives us direction. we can use it to serve our brothers and sisters we can use it to serve our brothers and sisters and what, what are we going to pair counseling with or in a little trio? Wisdom. Probably wisdom and understanding. But we're called to walk in all of these. All of these are, <laughs> these six are great. But we've got to walk in one specifically to walk in these six. We've got to walk in this spirit of holiness, that spirit of the living God. So we've got a comprehensive view of the Spirit, we've got a comprehensive view of the Father. Now let's carry on. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, 
To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So now what do we see about Jesus? How does it describe him? The faithful witness. this say to us? What does it say to you? For him to be the faithful witness. Think back to like John 17, John 18. We're in the high priestly prayer. Father, I have kept all that you have given me. I have lost none except the son of perdition who was slated for his task. He was the obedient son. I have made your name great among them, and I have shown them your name, your ways, your personage. How else do we see Christ as the faithful witness? Walked as a man, he could witness as one? Absolutely. How else do we see Christ as the faithful witness? He's always witnessing. Isaiah 11.3 said what? How does he judge? Not by what he sees or hears, but what the Father tells him. Well, what is Christ constantly saying about the things he says? I do not speak of my own accord, but I speak the things what? That the Father gives me. I'm not here touting myself. I'm telling you what the Father gives us. Firstborn of the dead. Now, is he the first one to be risen from the dead? Nope. What about Lazarus? Who raised him? Jesus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. What about the widow? <laughs> what about the widow's son? <laughs> Elijah raised him from the dead. He was the first fruit of the holiness. He's the first fruit of the holiness. What happened to Lazarus eventually? He died. What happened to the widow's son? He died. What But what happened to Moses? He died. He died. <laughs> but he's on the other side. Has, he, has Moses received his glorified body yet? No. No. Not, not before Christ anyway. Not before Christ anyway. Moses still hadn't received his glorified body. Because somewhere there's a skeleton here on earth that belongs to Moses. Same for Abraham. Same for Levi. Same for... Not going to happen until Christ comes and opens up the graves. And then the bodies of the slain will rise and they will be reunited with the soul and then we will be given the glorified body. But we have Jesus having been resurrected into a body, not like ours, but a holy body. How do we know it's a holy body? What can he do that we can't? He ascended. The what? He ascended. 
He ascended. What else can he do that we can't? He can walk through walls. I can't walk through this. I'm sure if I lean into it. But he's got the glorified body. He's the first one to receive. And this is what's called, in the Bible we see it twice, it's called an okaterion. An okaterion, that's the Greek word for it. Okaterion. It means a permanent habitation or a temple or a house. Now if John Ferguson were here, I would say where, the, where it appears the other time. It appears back in Genesis 6. But what we have is a permanent habitation. Is this body designed to stand before an almighty God? No. No, well, no not ours. So we've got to have a glorified body to stand before almighty God. Everybody, everybody gets an Okatarian of some kind. How do I know this? What would happen to this body in a lake of fire? It would be consumed and it would be ash before too very long. So for there to be eternal punishment, what do the damned have to have? Some kind of glorified body. They, they've got to have an Okatarian to endure eternal punishment. Well, it's really this, it's the soul. The soul will never die. Soul will never die. <laughs> no, and not the words anyway. And not the words anyway. All right. Rulers of the kings of the earth. Now this is not as positive of a title as it would seem. To be the king of the kings, to be the ruler of the kings is not <laughs> implicit of, hey, we're, we're all going to come, we're going to throw our crowns down, and we're going to hail Jesus as king. That's not what this is saying. This is very much an Isaiah chapter 6 understanding. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw, <laughs> I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, Aaron talked about the, the king's train, and the bigger the train meant the bigger the kingdom. What would happen in battle is once you killed the king, you would cut off about a foot, two feet of the king's robe, and it would then be taken to your king, or if it was the king that killed the other king, he would cut it off, and it would be sewn on to his battle robe. And so you constantly, the more you win, you constantly increase the length of the train of your robe. And what they would do is they would have a ceremonial robe that was made the same length as the battle robe, but you had the battle robe that had the, tra the trains off of all of these other king's robes, and so you can look back, oh, this green one here, this is where we killed the king of the Hittites. Oh, and that purple one down there, oh, man, that was a great battle when we fought the Philistines and we conquered them. Oh, well, there's where I beat the Greeks. And so for Christ's robe to fill the train of the, his train to fill the temple, and he's the ruler of the kings, it's not that they subjected themselves. It's that Christ brings them into subjection. Christ is the one who conquers he is the conquering king. His train fills the temple because he is the one that has persevered over every ruler, over every principality, over every king in the high places within the spiritual realm. His robe is long because he has conquered them all. Ma'am, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah or Isaiah, uh, when you go back to Chronicles and 2 Kings, you'll see King Isaiah. 
Isaiah and Uzziah, they're the same guy. You got to remember those books were written 400 years apart, so the vowels change a little bit, pronunciations change just a little bit, but it's the same guy. So if you feel the need to go research this guy. And he was a good, as far as Israel goes, Uzziah, Uzziah, however you want to say it, I mean, militarily, he was the pinnacle of Israeli power. He, <laughs> the man was kicking butt and taking names. But his downfall was he wanted to sacrifice to God. So he goes into the temple and he slaughters a sacrifice to God. And God gets enraged because who's supposed to do the sacrificing? The high, the high priest is supposed to sacrifice even, even as great of an offering as this was meant to be and as much of a, a view in, in Uzziah's mind of humility as this was supposed to be. And so he lives for the next 10 or 11 years with leprosy before he dies. He's an outcast and Israel just... But ironically at the same time there's a little bitty kingdom about 1600 miles away they're on a little river called the Tiber River. And as Israel's going down, this little kingdom founded by two brothers on the Tiber River, anybody know who it is? Romulus it's Rome. Romulus and Remus are the brothers. And so Rome's beginning to come into power so that when God tells Habakkuk, I'm doing something, if I were to tell you, you wouldn't believe it. It's hard to believe that this little fishing village is going to come and be the beast in Daniel of iron. A fearsome and ferocious beast. So, but we've got Jesus as ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, it's not, for these kings, it's not a positive title. It's not saying, hey, you were great guys, and you just, oh, well, there's Jesus, let's worship Jesus. It was a, <laughs> there's Jesus, dang it. So, to him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we have John giving us all three. He's given us God the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He gives us the Holy Spirit in its sevenfold function, and he gives us Jesus in his offices of prophet, priest, and king, more or less. So, what does he now do to Christ? To him who saved us by his blood, who made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, be what? Glory, Glory and dominion. Now I want to look at how he describes Christ. How does he describe him? He saves us. From our sin, how does he save us from our sin? By his blood. With his blood. One of the best sermons I heard at G3 this last week was by a guy by the name of Mike McCarty. He's the pastor of family outreach and family ministries at Grace Community Church out in Sun Valley, California. He works for John MacArthur. And he was talking about Christ's atonement. Does Christ's atonement provide for salvation? Or does it provide salvation? And we're talking about, about a very specific atonement here. And it was a great, great sermon. I was just, just soaking it up. But Christ's salvation is his, his sacrifice, his blood. 
There's an atonement that happens through Christ's blood. It's a very specific atonement. Who's it specific to? The elect. Those whom God has chosen. Those who God draws to Christ. Those who God brings to Christ. Those who answer the call for the wedding feast and come and, uh, and receive the robe of the king or the robe of the rich man for the wedding. Not those who come in in their own garments, their own way. It's a very specific atonement for the elect. Well, who's the elect? Well, do I know who's elect? No. Do you know who's elect? No. So who do we witness to? As many folks as possible because we don't know who's elect of God and who's not. So. But he saves us from his sins with his from our sins with his blood. How else does he describe him? What does he do to us? He makes us a kingdom. Kingdom. He makes us priests. What are we priests for? To serve. To God the Father. Priests. Are we going to see this reiterated in chapters 2 and 3? For him that overcomes, I shall make a pillar in the temple of the Lord my God. For him that <laughs> overcomes, I will give him a white robe, and he shall be considered a priest in the temple of the Lord my God. Jesus is talking to us. He makes us a kingdom. He makes us priest to God the Father. Now, do we see this anywhere else in Scripture? First Peter. First Peter 2, verse 9, I think. Somebody, how about somebody turn over there and read it for us? Yeah, 2 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. just declare us kingdom your priests because I mean there, there are things that are prescribed for priests that are laid out they're clean they've been cleansed okay what else they have a certain lineage mm -hmm. for the Levitical priests yes I would agree but now Jesus is a priest after the order of who Melchizedek and we're not supposed to worry about genealogies we're not supposed to worry about beginnings and endings, and we did cover that some prior to, but I'm going to read some from Leviticus for you, and then we're going to look at a, new a corresponding New Testament passage. Uh, I'm going to be in Leviticus 8, if you care to follow along. And I will read through probably the whole chapter. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded when the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting 
Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded us to do. Then Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons came near, and Moses washed them with water. He put the tunic on him and girded him with the sash and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him, and he girded him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied it to him. Then he placed the breastpiece on him, and the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. He also placed the turban on his head, and on the turban at its front he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Next, Moses had Aaron's sons come near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes and bound caps on them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Uh, let's see, let's jump down to 18. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it and sprinkled the blood around on the altar when he had cut the ram into its pieces. Moses offered up the head and the pieces and the suet in smoke. After he had washed the entrails and the legs with water, Moses offered up the whole ram in smoke on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a soothing aroma. It was an offering by fire to the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, so they take a ram, and what does Moses do to it? What happens to the ram? Sacrifice. He sacrifices it. He throws it on the, burnt, on, the, on the altar. How much of it? The whole thing. So we've got a ram that has died completely and has been taken away. Then he presented the second ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Moses slaughtered it and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. He also had Aaron's sons come near and Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of their right ear and on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. Moses then sprinkled the rest of the blood around on the altar. He took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and the right thigh. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake and one cake of bread mixed with oil and one water and placed them on the portions of fat, with the portions of the fat on the right thigh. He then put all of these on the hands of Aaron and on the hands of his sons and presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and offered them up in smoke on the altar with the burnt offering. They were an ordination offering for a soothing aroma. It was an offering by fire to the Lord. Moses also took the breast and presented it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of the ordination, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of the sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his garments, and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and eat it there together with the bread which is in the basket of the ordination offering, just as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. Then remember of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn in the fire. Of the remainder of the flesh and the bread you shall burn in the fire. You shall not go outside the doorway of the tent of meeting for seven days. 
until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled. For he will ordain you through seven days, the Lord has commanded to do as has been done this day, and to make atonement on your behalf. What happens to the second ram? Part of it's burnt, part of it's consumed by the priest. Blood was sprinkled and it covered parts of them. What else? They were told to stay within the temple for seven days. Anything else? What was that? Blood on the right ear, the right thumbnail, the right big toenail. Anything else? Did y'all notice anything? The second ram, they laid their hands on. The first ram, they laid their hands on. The second ram, they then take, lay their hands on, and they eat a portion of it. They burn a portion, they boil a portion for consumption. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup, he gave thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Then in John 13... We see that Jesus gets up, girds himself. He takes off his outer tunic. He's just there in what we would call underwear, his little jumpsuit that would be under his tunic. And what does he do? He washes the disciples' feet. Next week when we come to the communion table, I want you to understand that that's a priestly ordination meal. The first ram is killed in Genesis. Where is it killed? atop Mount Moriah, whose hand slits its throat? Abraham. Abraham kills the first ram. It's caught by its, thorn, by its horns in the thicket. It's a, pro, it's a type of Christ. It's a Christological symbol. The second ram comes, and Jesus tells him when he's out doing ministry that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what happens to a lot of the disciples that were hanging around they went away because it was what? That's a hard saying. But what does Jesus do? He gets up there in the upper room. They're commanded not to drink blood. We, we, we don't do that. But then he's got the, at least 12 left. And he says, well, Peter, aren't you going to leave? What does Peter say? Lord, where are we going to go? You got the words of life. Ain't nobody wants us now. And so in the upper room, he takes the bread symbolically and he breaks it. And what does he say? Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Then he takes the cup and he says, drink of this, for this is my blood that is poured out for the remission of sin. Where is the blood of the ram poured out? After it's applied to the ear, the thumb, and the toe, it's poured out around the altar from both rams. Communion. 
one of the two ordinances ordained within the church that we are to constantly observe is a priestly ordination meal. This is how we are ordained as priests. This is how we are brought into that royal priesthood. That's why partaking of the Lord's Supper proclaim my death until I come. Why? Because he's the ram of ordination. He draws us in. Now when we were reading about the priest's garments, what was not listed? We've got a tunic. We've got a robe. We've got a sash. We've got the ephod. We've got the decorative rope for the ephod. No shoes. No shoes. But now when Jesus gets up to wash, what does Jesus wash? Feet. Feet. And what does Peter say? Big mouth. No, 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 no. Don't, no, Lord, you ain't washing my feet. I need to be washing your feet. Lord, you're not washing my feet. What does Jesus say? If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then what does Peter say? Lord, wash me all over. Give me a bath. <laughs> Brother, let's go down to the river. You bring the ivory soap because it's going to float, so we ain't got to worry about knowing where it went. We're going to throw her up there. We're going to scrub me down. <laughs> I'm just telling you. We don't want the soap that's going to sink to the bottom. We want to be able to see it. That 99.9% .9 pure. If it's good enough for the high priest, it's good enough for me. But then what does Jesus say? But to wash your feet. And the rest of you will be clean. He that has bathed only need wash his feet. Why, why the feet? Why, why is the priestly garments missing shoes? When you carry the Ark of the Covenant everywhere, when you're walking through the desert with rocks and scorpions and thorns and brambles as a high priest with the Ark of the Covenant on your shoulder, you got no shoes. Because you're walking on holy ground. Because you're walking on holy ground. God told Moses to take his shoes off at the burning bush. Take your shoes off at the burning bush. What's, what's kind of funny about Jesus washing their feet? What's going to be the dirtiest part of their body? Their feet. Their feet. God makes us a kingdom. Jesus made us this kingdom. He makes us to be priests to God the Father. Because he's the firstborn of the dead, he's the faithful witness. Because God wants to deal with our ugly. God wants to deal with our nastiness. Jesus wasn't concerned about washing Peter's body. Jesus wasn't concerned about the back that may be a little bit sweaty, but other than that, he's good. Or the brow that Peter's been constantly wiping all day is clean. He was worried about that which had been consumed in the muck and in the mire. He was consumed about getting to the heart of the matter, that which is most disgusting. It's been through manure. It's been through all kinds of fecal matter. It's been through dust. It's been through dirt. It's the dirtiest part. God wants that part. And we say, God, you, you don't want that part. You don't want my ugly. God said, no, I really do. I want your ugly parts. I, I want that portion of you because... I can clean that. I'm not worried about cleaning those spots that are pretty much clean. I want you to see that I can clean that ugly portion. That's how he makes us 
priests. That's how he makes us a royal nation. That's how he makes us to rule and reign with him because he gets in and he takes care of that ugly, that dirty portion of us that we think nobody can touch, that even Ivory Soap won't touch. That's what portion God's calling for. And that's how we have to look at Revelation as we go through it. We're a holy nation. Like Peter said, we are a holy priesthood. We are a peculiar people. And God wants to clean us. Not that we can do it, just like that wedding feast that we read about in the parables, that the rich man called for the nobles to come. The nobles don't come. He sends out for the townsfolk. The town folks don't come. He sends a servant out into the highways and the byways and said, get anybody that'll come in to come. And one person shows up and he's got his own robe on. And God says, kick him out. You're not coming in my way. Because it was the wedding, the father of the groom's job to provide clothes for everybody for the wedding so that, every, so that the pictures would come out just lovely. We all got the matching <laughs> outfits on. But it was his job to provide the robe. That's why the one guy got thrown out. He came in wearing his own clothes. He came in his way doing it. He accepted the invitation, but he tried to do it his way. God says, there's no way but my way. I got to clean you. I want to clean you. It's not by your works. You got no work that'll get you there. Where are we time-wise? Because I'm pretty sure I'm, yeah, I'm right at seven. Woo, timed that one pretty good. Um, look at your diagram of the temple because that's going to start playing out because we're going to get to the seven spirits. We're going to get to the seven candlesticks that we read about, and we're going to see some temple imagery next week. Questions, thoughts, comments, snarks, conundrums, complaints? Going once. Going twice. All right, somebody close us out and we'll call it a night. Thank you.